Silent Dawn continues on Channel 5 with Creature from Black Lake. Welcome to Movies Till Dawn, a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating and always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond DeFelita, and I'm the show's Toastmaster General. So here's a conversation I had with the iconic independent filmmaker Mary Harron, who has directed, among other movies, I shot Andy Warhol, American Psycho, The Notorious Betty Page, and a movie that came out last year that I urge you to see and more people should have seen called Charlie Says, which is a take on the story of the Charles Manson family as seen through the eyes of the women in the cult. Leslie Van Houten, Susan Atkins, Squeaky Fromm. Uh, and, you know, while it, it seems to be the year of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, which is a movie I personally loved, but I urge you to see Mary's movie, uh, even if you feel all mansoned out, uh, you know, at the moment, because it's very different, it's very illuminating, and it's filled with terrific performances, like all Mary's movies are. Uh, it's reductive to categorize Mary. Labeling her is, isn't really a good idea because she really is her own genre in a way. Her stories are very much rooted in the popular culture and the odd underground movements and lives in the 20th century. Um, certainly female characters are central to her movies, uh, except oddly what's probably her best known film, American Psycho. But that is, you know, her other movies are to me much more her own vision and reflective of her own interests and concerns and observations, um, as well as her frequent screenwriting collaborator, Guinevere Turner. So in part one of this conversation, we actually just talk about two movies. We talk about Charlie Says, and we talk about the notorious Betty Page, which she made for HBO, uh, with a great central performance by Gretchen Maul. Uh, Mary also shares her very unusual observations about what she thinks made Manson Manson and what she thinks made Betty Page Betty Page. Uh, all pretty interesting, I think. She also talks about shooting Betty Page in black and white as well as in color and, and how she combined those. And um, she also tells us her two most common pieces of direction to actors. So here we go, back to a hot summer's day in uptown Manhattan in 2019, where I sat around and I conversed with a filmmaker I've admired for a long time, Mary Harron. Enjoy. I mean, my dad was an actor, and I spent part of my childhood in Hollywood. Um, and so I certainly grew up kind of in show business, in terms of my dad, my stepfather was a writer, um, but but I think maybe maybe that influenced me. I'm I'm certainly obsessed with the underside of show business. Sure. I'm very interested in in failed Hollywood and all that stuff. Although I haven't made a film about it yet. Although Betty's a bit of a, a film, but not making it in show business. Um, yeah, it's it's true. I'm, but I'm also interested in these isolated little groups like the Warhol Factory, like the Claws. They're kind of subcultures. They're underground, mm -hmm. in a way. And I always loved the underground. The, you know, it, it, Manson is a bad underground, you know, is, is a kind of art cult gone bad, really bad. But I do love that sort of enclosed, hidden world. Well, it's also, in a sense, about failed showbiz, too. He, he wants Terry <laughs> Melcher to come out and, and give him, you know, he, he, he wants uh, uh, Wilson to, you know, to bless yep. his career and bring him along. And when he busts up the guitars after that ludicrous performance 
which is so painful to watch um, uh, with, with the girls nude and dancing behind his awful song. But when he busts up the guitars, you realize what, what one of the things that maybe, in spite of his long criminal record prior, the thing that probably set him off ultimately was failure at showbiz. <laughs> failure and humiliation. And I think that one of the things that happens is if you give somebody, especially someone who's grown up as horribly deprived and abused as Manson did, growing up most of his life in prison, and you, and you give them a taste of fame and celebrity culture, um, I think the worst thing that happened to him and to the world was that Dennis Wilson happened to hit, pick up a couple of the girls when they were hitchhiking. We don't show that side of the film. We, we, uh, the film starts when Dennis Wilson is already a friend of theirs. But meeting Dennis Wilson, one of the most famous people in the world, you know, and Dennis Wilson taking an interest in him, I think just was like a, a match to gasoline. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And yeah. then when that's taken, and you, you see this in the film business too, or in, and anything where, like, um, you know, reality show contestants, it's very hard to give someone attention and a feeling of success and then withdraw it. And people can crash very hard. And I think if you're unstable, mentally unstable like Madsen, then you can, can crash in a very dangerous way. What do you, given, given his rootlessness and, and, and given the incredible number of uh, years in jail that he spent up until then, what gave him the inspiration, if, if you can call it that, to create this strange off-the-charts off the cult? Because there's, that's clearly a, a project he undertook and, and was able to successfully manipulate people who were not stupid. Well, I think he, he was someone who could not really function in the outside world because he'd grown up from the age of 12 in, in juvenile prison and then adult prison. He could only function in a very enclosed world and he was only comfortable in a world that he dominated. Mm -hmm. um, he had tons of rules uh, for, for, the, for the family and, 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 and he, in many ways he was very rigid and that made him feel comfortable. I think prison's a very regimented existence too. Mm -hmm. And so he was always trying to, re I think people are always trying to reproduce the situations of their childhood, the situations in which they feel at home, even if it's not necessarily a good situation. There's that instinct we have. And with him, he, he, he couldn't be out in the world was something that just freaked him out. When he was actually released from prison at the age of 32, I think it was, he sat outside the prison for hours. He just was scared to, to leave it. He didn't know what to do. And they finally came out and said, Charlie, you have to get, you have to get on the bus. You know, you have to, you have to leave. Yeah. Um, so it's something to do with that, I think. Did you, um, were you, were you able to meet um, uh, Leslie Van Houten? No, because her, because her case is still under parole hearings, um, she, she can't in get involved in any kind of film project. Right. Um, the person that I didn't get to meet, but that the writer Guinevere Turner met was Colleen Faith. Who wrote the book. Who wrote the book and is the, is the young academic who gives them classes mm -hmm. in prison after they've been um, sentenced to life imprisonment. And, and Gwyn spent a lot of time with her, and unfortunately she died just before the film went into production. Yeah, I saw that, that she had died a couple of years before, so I was wondering if you had had any interaction yeah. with her. But, but uh, Gwyn also had access to, to sort of notes she'd written and, and her sort of unpu some unpublished biographical writings. I mean, she spent a lot of time with her. So the, all that stuff about the prison is really based on Carlene's. And she was the only person who really, from the outside, spent a great deal of time with them. I know everyone thinks we're these scary creatures who committed these horrible crimes. 
but we did what we had to do. I need your help with the Manson girls over in the special security unit. Good morning, ladies. I'd like you to meet Carlene Faith. Hi, Carlene. What is it you can really do for them? I just want to remind them who they were before they ever met Charles Manson. It's like being home again. The family before the crimes, when everything was about love. So then was it, because uh, I know you, you have both collaborated before, uh, uh, which one of you or both of you found the book, decided to, that it was a, a unique way to, to get in, into the Manson story, the, to see it through the eyes of the, of the women? That was Guinevere, and she really had, was working on the project uh, quite a long time before I came on. She was, uh, had been hired to write or rewrite a script, and then she decided to write her own script about the, the Manson family uh, for a different director. And so I was just talking to her as a friend about it. Uh, but I was always, you know, like anybody of my generation who, who remembers the 60s, you know, uh, I was always fascinated by the, the Manson story, particularly the women, because they were uh, the sort of bad hippie girls, you know. Um, and so I, so I was just, you know, always curious about it. And eventually she gave me the first draft to read. And I was really taken with it. And I loved the prison stuff. That's what most excited me because I just felt, oh, this is a part of the story I don't know. So I said, if um, if the other director drops out, I'll I'd be interested. That's how that came about. Oh, okay, yeah. Did, uh, did you shoot in a real prison? We um, we some of it. Um, some of the exteriors we shot in a real prison, and the interiors, most of them were in a a nice stage set in right, Los Angeles. Okay. That's a, an existing prison set. I've I've shot in real prisons a couple of times, and it is a most debilitating experience it's just the atmosphere I mean there, there are wings that are closed off they let people shoot in them but each time I've done it I cannot wait to get home and take a shower and, mm. and have a long tall glass of vodka anything to get all as far away from the experience and and um, it, it's it's strange to me that it's very hard to convey that in a film uh, what 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 it actually looks feels smells like but in 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 Charlie says they're isolated yeah. And, and that's another way to look at it, which is you really do feel that they are forever caught in this little tiny web of, of rooms. Were they actually? Yes, they were that isolated because what had happened was um, uh, Leslie Van Houten, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Susan Atkins were all sentenced to death. And then California uh, turned over the death penalty. And so they were stuck. And, they, and this isolation unit had been built for them thinking that they were going to be on death row. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they, they, this was overturned, and then like we're stuck with them in this isolation unit, but you can't leave them in complete isolation for like, you know, the next 40 years. So the prison governor was a woman, um, the prison warden, I mean, um, decided to, to get this young woman, Carlene Faith, who was running cl prison classes, you know, uh, sort of social justice kind of prison classes, for women prisoners to come in and, and talk to them and give them so just open up them up a bit, just bring something of the outside world to them. Tell me a little bit about casting the mm -hmm. women. I always do a very, very long casting process and a very kind of arduous one. Um, and there's usually a lot of fights with the producers. Uh, well, not with the producers who've worked with me before, but <laughs> if they haven't, I think they don't realize, you know, how 
how horribly stubborn I am about this, but to me, it's like if I don't have the, my choice of casting, then I, I'm not going to make the movie. Basically, mm. I, to me, it's everything. It's it's more than ninety percent of it. Um, and if so, if I can't, certainly, if I had not had the right person for Manson, I would not have made the movie. But I also felt strongly about you know casting each of the girls as well. Um, but Manson in particular was a really difficult part because it's. It, it, if you don't get someone believable or charismatic or somehow that, you know, there's a sort of engine there, and you've got sort of a sort of damp squib as Manson, then don't make the movie. We're all about love here. We got no secrets. We got no shame. Sometimes there has to be some depth of self, changes, tears. Or are you willing to die for me? Well, well, you got Doctor Who. I got Doctor Who. <laughs> how, how did you? How did you? Did you test Matt Smith, or did yes. you test? Yeah. Yes, for a part like that. I mean, because he's a young actor, it's it's different. You know, I'm, in my next film is with Sir Ben Kingsley, and I did not ask him to read for it because you know, so I've seen him in a hundred movies. But um, with Matt, I hadn't seen him do a lot of American roles, and I just, and I I feel like British actors are very good about reading for things. You know, they're not precious about it. And I always, you know, especially with young actors, I think they should always read for it because they themselves don't know what they can do, really. And in this case, this is such an out there part. And he came in and his audition was so exciting that the end of it, uh, one of my casting directors said, I got into the business, into casting for a, for a session like that. Mm because he was so kind of electrifying to see some, he was doing a lot of improvising, he was kind of, he's very live where he was bouncing around the room. I thought, oh yeah, this is really exciting. You're not gonna know what this guy's gonna do next. I always feel when, when an actor auditions that, uh, that excited, it makes you that excited. I always feel like, well, you, you've taken a huge load of work off of me. I, you, you, you've made the film come alive, and I, and I know that we're going to have something exciting to do. Now the real work's going to start, but I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I can give myself up to your talent on, on a certain level. I totally feel that. I totally feel that. Um, and, and to me, the really hard work actually is casting, because I feel like once you've cast the right person, then of course they also do a lot of the work, because then it's, they, in an ideal world, like you get someone like Jared Harris, who you know, I've worked with a couple times who's a, a genius, I think, and, and or Lily Taylor, you know, was in my, they were the stars of my first film. And they will just go so deep into it that they'll know more, they'll know their characters better. You know, it, it, it was true of Christian Americans. Like with all the, all the leads, you know, Gretchen Moll and Betty Page, by the end, of, if, if you cast the right person and they really dig into it, then you really kind of switch flick a switch and let them go with, with some, you know, pulling them back sometimes or some, you know, gentle uh, direction. But really, they will surprise you with what they know. They will, they will know that, that character better than you do as the director. And I think that's what's really exciting about the lead actor or mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, also, they have one very big important thing to focus on. The director has 10,000 things of varying to focus on and so it's great when an actor has that yeah hyper focus and um, yeah I always I think directing is like being a conductor conductor of the orchestra yeah. or the band uh, and so they're great soloists and your job the director's job is is to have the big picture the total piece 
sure. in their head at any moment. And a lot of your job as a director, I think, is reining people in, um, in the sense of do. A, I think my my two most common pieces of direction are do less and do it faster. Because you know everyone wants wants to do 150 percent, and sometimes you don't want that. You know, you right? Right. You you've got to think about the harmony of the whole. When you test, though, because I've never shot a test, do you, do you... I have shot a test, and now, and now you know, they tend to tape everything. Yeah. Um, I did, on, on Betty Page, we did screen tests, partly for it to show HBO, um, and partly because that was a sort of physical transformation. Uh, we didn't test a lot of people, we tested a couple of people. Um, but I remember my first movie, you know, um, I'm trying to even remember if they were if they were taped. I guess they were, um, but I don't do actual formal screen tests right. usually. So when you say test, you're really talking about an in-person an in-person reading, yeah, yeah. in-person. I mean now, um, I mean it's funny because a lot of people now uh, send in tape, you know, or send in whatever you call what do you call tape? Something send in something digital. Yeah, they <laughs> capture themselves tape. and capture themselves yeah. and they put it on and then it goes up on a site and. Um, in some ways, I miss, uh, but but when I'm going to cast somebody, I pretty much always am in the room for the final rounds, uh, even for people with one scene, if I can, if I can. Right. I'm never happy if I've cast somebody and I haven't been in the room. It ne it never seems to work out well. I just have to. That's be That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And Hannah Murray came. Hannah Murray. Uh, who plays Leslie Van Houten. Who, who, who's heartbreaking in, in the movie. Yeah. Oh, she's incredible. And I realized after I had cast her that years ago I was doing a film about teenage girls called The Moth Diaries, and I did some casting in London, and this girl came in who was absolutely amazing. And I felt at the time that she wasn't quite right for the role, a role that I then cast Sarah Gadden in, who was just did Alias Grace with me, who's another great, great actress. But I always thought, oh, that girl was amazing. What happened to her? I couldn't even remember her name. Mm. But I did remember that, that the casting director said, oh, yeah, she's very good in skins. But I hadn't seen the British skins at that time. And then after I cast Hannah, I went back and I thought, oh, what has she done? Oh, skins. And I went and looked at her on set. I realized, that's the girl. That's this amazing girl who came in whose name I couldn't remember. So I was glad I got to, to work with her in the end. Um, she initially auditioned on Skype. And even on Skype, horrible quality, you know, through the computer screen, she was so great that afterwards we said, well, that set the bar. You know, I don't know if anybody else is going to match that. And mm. she was so, so remarkable that that was it. And, you know, no one else really was in play after yeah. that. Yeah, and, and because I think you're really seeing the movie through her eyes one way or another, you have to have someone mm. that potent and that... You know, so it was a, and that was an interesting choice too, because I didn't honestly know a lot about her. No, and she's, um, I mean, she's, you know, she's on Game of Thrones and all that. And, yeah. But she's, now, now she yeah. is. But she's, uh, what I think really struck me about her all those years ago when she first, when I first met her, she has an emotional transparency. Mm -hmm. She's like, it's, she's, it's just there. Her emotions are absolutely there. You're not aware of any kind of acting. It's like she's living it and experiencing it. She's a very super sensitive 
and, and truthful actress. And she's also, but it's funny, because you could get an equally great actress who wouldn't be right for that role. Sosie Bacon's a great actress. Marianne Rendon's a great actress who'd play the other two women. Right. But I wouldn't have cast either of them as, as Leslie, because I think what, what Hannah projects is a, it's a hopefulness. You know, as they say in the film, she's a seeker. She's someone who's looking for, for enlightenment, a spiritual seeker. And I think that she had that very strongly. Mm-hmm. Um, Sosie Bacon, who I really love, who's uh, great, yeah. who's of course, the daughter of Kevin Bacon um, and Kira Sedgwick, uh, is, and is, is a fantastic, per, you know, grounded young woman. And she, um, she has this kind of really strangely wholesome, like grounded, kind quality, and which is fantastic because in many ways, Patricia Krenwinkel was like that. She, Patricia Krenwinkel also did more violence than any of the other women, did more horrendous participation in the murders. And I think that's because she was the one who was most in love with Charlie and was most his fanatical uh, supporter. Um, and then Marion Rendon, who's a fantastic uh, performer as well, plays Susan Atkins, who's the kind of wildest and sort of trixiest. You know, she was, um, uh, you know, like a, headed for nowhere good, but wasn't, wouldn't have killed anyone, but she was already working as a topless dancer. She'd been involved in petty crime, drugs, you know. Susan's life wasn't headed anywhere particularly right. good. Yeah, whereas you can, you can see, especially because the end of the film, which is so poignant, it's really heartbreaking, which is that Leslie Van Houten could have gotten on that motorcycle. She had that chance, and, yeah. and that's where the movie, I think, lives to me. That's where, that's where at the end of it, I said this has more size than you even think as you're watching it, because you say this is actually beyond the story of mm. the Mansons. It's the, it's the story of what's the one moment that many of us miss, and in some cases, it's simply a missed moment. Sometimes it's a career. Sometimes yeah. it's your life, and you become the most infamous, one of the most infamous killers in the, yeah. in the world. Yeah, I almost didn't go to the Seattle Film Festival in 1996, so then I didn't meet, I, would, I wouldn't have met my husband, you know. My whole life changed because I went to that one. I was retired, I didn't want to go. But I thought, uh, many of the major things in my life have happened when I went somewhere I didn't really want to go. I mean, I, I love the Seattle Film Festival. It wasn't that, it was just that I, I was, I was very tired at that point. <laughs> um, no, I think with Leslie, it's like if, if Leslie Van Houten hadn't met Charles Manson, I think the worst that would have happened to her probably is that she would have met the Bhagwan or some, ended up in some yoga cult for a few years. Right. You know, because she, she did have this kind of obedient follower quality to her, but, but I think she could have been in something pretty harmless in the sense yeah. of, you know, or she, you know, she would now be teaching yoga in Southern California and have kids and dogs and in my stuff, mm-hmm. you know. She wasn't, it's, I mean, I think, it's interesting, one of the criticisms that I've, I've found early on in the film was like, why don't you say more about their autobi- their biographies, about their childhoods, or what, the, the path that brought each of the women there. But the thing is, they were all so different, and nothing really, in most of their lives, explained why they ended up in this place. So, I think, for Guinevere and me, what we wanted to focus on was what happened to them at the ranch in terms of the breakdown of, of ego and, and, and some kind of mind control that went on. It's the kind of criticism that I, I always find peculiar because it, it's, it's usually like if, if you get script notes, usually it's I need to know more of the background, I need more motivation. And a lot of the time my answer, which doesn't 
please anyone, but I, it's how I honestly feel is you think you want to know more, but you don't really. It's not going to help. It's, not go, it's going to take up time, and in some cases it'll diffuse. And I think one of, the, one of the powerful things about how little you do know about their backgrounds is you have to fill it in. You have to mm -hmm. kind of figure out how did they get here and what are their... What are their backgrounds based on the personalities that you're showing? So to me, that's a that's a strength not to not to have to lean on her daddy abused her, her, her parents abandoned her, her grandmother. But you know, it, it that that's that all that stuff's there. You know, you don't really need to know the the details. Yeah, and I think they all had some bad things, but but none of them had as bad things as Charlie did. I mean, the, probably the person whose whose childhood is most relevant is Manson's because he had a sort of spectacularly awful childhood. But there are peop other people who've had spectacularly awful childhoods who end up, you know, um, being, um, you know, forces for good or, you know, running congregations or doing all kinds, you know, making something of their lives. You, you, it's really, there's the circumstances and there's what you do with them. But I, I'm glad to hear that because I feel like, and certainly in Hollywood, psychology is the kind of the crutch, you know. Her father abused her, therefore, you know, that explains everything. This is very true of biopics. There's always that moment of, th then, you know, there was that terrible thing with his, in his childhood, and, and that explains everything, and people are comfortable then because, oh, oh, okay, now I understand any mystery associated with their character. You know, that's why Johnny Cash, you know, took drugs, or that's why, you know, uh, Ray Charles did this or that. And... Really? You know, that explains everything? It's that simple, you know? She was the pinup queen of the universe. I need you to lift your knee up. I'm seeing you a little bit too much. Can you bend over? Show us your kisser. Oh, you're so happy. I don't know how much I love you. Her pictures captured the fantasies of a nation. It takes all types to make a world. What kind of types? I'd like this young lady to look very strict. Little John has some special outfits he'd like you to put on. I'll say they're special. Betty, do you understand what kind of man buys these pictures? Does it just make you sick to see guys like me grovel like this? It's fine. Don't you just want to crush us? Humiliate us? Punish us? But for Betty Page, life was more than just a pose. Tell it. what do you think of all this tying up business? Oh, I enjoy acting very much. Has Mama said anything to you about my mother? Not a word. What do you think Jesus would say about what you're doing now? I hope that if he's unhappy with what I'm doing, he'll let me know somehow. I have to ask them, what do you, what do you feel then about the rape in Betty Page in the, in the woods? Because obviously she's been abused before that. It's a, it's a, it's a very interestingly done scene because it's so, uh, it's so simple and it's so, it's so, it's so short. I was thinking of it when, when I was watching the film that in some ways the Betty's rape is what causes her to not be able to act at all except in a sexualized form where she feels entirely free in front of that camera but she feels entirely but then again I'm looking at it going is this me making too much out of one incident like you're just talking about I mean to be honest Betty Page just wasn't a very good actress and and <laughs> If you've ever seen, there's a fa certain famous models who are fantastic on camera in still photographs, as Betty was. And like, they're fantastic camera stills models. And you put them in live action and they're just, it just goes dead. And unfortunately, I think Betty was like that. She just wasn't, from what little bits I've seen of her, I don't think she was, she was really an actress, but she was a fantastic model. And that's an art form in itself. 
No, I think what happened with the rape, the way I saw that was it was a horrible thing that she didn't talk to anybody about for years. But I also think if you think about women of that generation, women my generation, you know, uh, you know, a few years older, um, there's all kinds of crap that happens to you that you just, and you just kind of keep going. And my original title, which I preferred, I have to say, for this movie was The Ballad of Betty Page. And I love this song that Patsy Cline sings, Life is Like a Mountain Railroad. Life is like a mountain railroad. To me, that was her theme song. Life is like a mountain railroad. You just keep going up the hill, against up the hills, down, you know against all the terrible things. She was poor white Southern girl, you know, and, and who'd grown up in the Depression. So life is already throwing you a lot of crap. Her father abused her. So you just, her mother was very sort of cold to her. So she's already starting with those difficult things. The rape is terrible and traumatic, but it's one more bad thing that you have to kind of ignore. And to me, particularly the women of, of past generations where you didn't talk about any of the bad things that happened to you. There's no therapy. There's no, there's no counseling. You just try and forget it and put it out of your mind, where I'm sure it does bad things to you below the surface because you never get to, to, to let it out or talk about it. But it's not, the effect it has in your life is complicated. I think there was something about her that was very switched off, and there's a kind of blankness in her, this sort of sweet blankness, that I think is, is, is an extreme version of something that was true of a lot of women in the 50s, where they just couldn't talk about all the, the things that they were suffering or going through. So there's this kind of smiling, like smiling through, and yet not, not being in touch with the really painful things that have happened to you because you, you can't afford to be and no one wants to hear about it anyway. I guess that's how I see it. So it's, re so it's reductive in a sense to connect rape to, uh, to her comfort as a sexualized performer? I don't know. No, I wouldn't say it's reductive at all. I think that if you look at the career, but it's complicated is what I would say. I think, I think where I disagree with people who've sort of analyzed the film is when they think that she was raped and abused and therefore she wanted to do bondage photographs. I don't think that Betty honestly really, really understood or was interested in S&M or bondage. Um, it was just something that crazy stuff that some people like to do and they like, and remember she was just dressing up in these outfits. She wasn't actually participating in, I mean, she was doing some sort of solo things about crawling around in, in bondage gear or, you know, she or one of the other girls would pretend to whip each other. But I don't think that she took all that stuff that seriously. And I, I think that it's the hardest thing to explain to people, but if you, if you, if you go into the sort of fetishes in the 1950s, it was such a hidden world. People had no idea what it really meant. Talk about a subculture. It was a really, really hidden world. So now everybody knows what bondage is. But people on the street, you know, don't, didn't know what bondage was. So Betty certainly had never encountered it before. But I don't think she was very interested in it, and I don't think the Claws were that interested in it, not from a personal 
you know, no one was getting sexual gratification from it. They were making money off it. The way that I think that Betty's sexual abuse and rape affected her was in many ways the way I think it affected someone like, like Marilyn Monroe or Rita Hayworth and all these um, sex symbols, uh, American sex symbols, where, who, who almost always were abused if you look at their childhoods, sort of awful abuse in, in many cases. And I think that being photographed uh, is, a, is, is a way of time taking back power. I think Betty loved the camera clubs because, you know, she would be in a circle of light and there'd be a ring of men all watching her, which she found tremendously exciting to be admired and watched. And she got power from it, but no one could touch her, you know? In the camera clubs, it was strictly forbidden to touch the models. Mm. So I think that she got this, like, I always felt like she was like a flower feeding off the sun of attention. Because, you know, it builds you up, you're being acclaimed. And that's what I think. I think that, I think that being a nude model in some ways, she got all the, the power of her sexuality and, the, and the, uh, being acclaimed for it while feeling protected, in being in a protected zone. That's, mm -hmm. that's my feeling about it. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. You, you make the point in, in Notorious Betty Page, which, by the way, I agree with you, Ballad of Betty Page is, is a lot, it's a lot, well, it's less pulpy, but, it, but in a way it's, it's got its own, um, it has its own taste of pulp and one that feels more, uh, you know, more appropriate for the movie. But you do make the point in it that she really doesn't think it's anything but dressing up and she yeah. thinks it's kind of fun to do. Do you, do you believe that that's what she thought? Yes, because, because remember, she wasn't having sex. And to Betty, someone like Betty, if you said the word pornography to her or blue movies or whatever, she would think that meant having sex. And she would think that that would mean there being men in the movies. She, was, she did feel worried about nudity. So paradoxically, she wasn't really worried about the bondage stuff because she wasn't naked. And to her, you know, the way she was brought up is, and she loved to be naked. She loved to walk around the woods naked. But she was thinking, you know, is this right? Is this wrong? She sort of battled over that in her mind. Is this that, that scene, uh, the photographer played by Jared Harris? It's a hilarious scene. Yeah. She, she's, she's tied up uh, against a wall with ropes all over, and she's saying that God's going to punish her for the nude photos. Yeah. And he's, uh, while, while she's doing the shoot, it's just hilarious. Yeah. And he's like, oh, my God. Because John Willie, the photographer that Jared plays, uh, really was a fetishist, and he was super into bondage, and uh, and had edited Bondage magazine, and did all these beautiful bondage. You know, he was a very good artist. Did all these uh, bondage drawings, and to him, it was like, oh my God, this girl doesn't have a clue. Okay, well, <laughs> it takes all kinds, you know. Right. Now that yeah, and then that makes me wonder too about that that croquet party that turns into the mm. to the movie they make in the country because it, by saying that, I'm thinking, well, he he really kind of wants it to be both an event personally and something that he can also photograph and he can make into a movie. It's yeah. a lot less clinical than the claws in their, in their room just shooting what they know they can churn out and sell through the mails. And what's funny is you can tell this because the claw photos, I mean, the reason why I first got um, kind of drawn into this story was the claw photos are hilarious and it's, they're, they're, they don't seem actually to me sexy at all. 
And it's Betty posing like with this, like Betty Crocker with this big smile on her face in front of some kind of 1950s, you know, sofa and lamp in some somebody's living room that they borrowed, funny, you know, wallpaper, and and wearing some fetish outfit, but basically looking like she's Betty Crocker, Betty, you know. Um, whereas if you look at some of John Willie's artwork and photographs, that is erotic, you know, because the eye, through his eye. You know, he, his, he saw the erotic in it and, cre you know, created that. But Paula Claw was just snap, snap, snap. Mm -hmm. That's another thing about why Betty was, co was comfortable in doing these photographs, was that it was a woman, Paula Claw, taking most of the photos. I see, yeah. So that, that makes, I think that makes a big, it, I have two daughters and girls are funny. Just girls together are very comfortable with their, with their bodies and, you know, uh, I, I don't know, I don't have sons, but girls are like, you know, wandering around half undressed or, you know, all piled up together with their arms around each other. I mean, there was this sort of sleepover element to all the models and Paula taking photos of them that was kind of playful, I think. Well, it makes sense, too, of her um, eventual meeting with Bunny Yeager, who's kind of the high class version of, of this, and uh, she's completely comfortable with her. And Bunny Yeager does not appear to be the way I read it, the way uh, she's portrayed in your movie, exploitative. No, I mean, I think actually B Bunny Yeager... A good business person. Yes, but, yeah. she was, you know, eye on the dollar, but she was a great photographer, actually. Um, really was very talented. She'd been a model herself, so she was comfortable with the whole business of, of nude modeling. Uh, but she also wanted to do sort of natural light, and she was interested in, you know, the beauty of the female form, the beauty of the naked body, mm -hmm. you know. And those photographs actually are really lovely. The, the movie's in black and white, and I know everyone's first question is, why did you shoot it in black and white? So I'm not going to ask you that. Oh, no, you can ask me that. <laughs> and actually, actually, it's very interesting because I was just um, talking to someone else who's planning to do a black and white movie. And I said, you know, I didn't realize until we were shooting it or in the middle of shooting it why I had insisted on shooting it in black and white. And I, I was kind of absolutely adamant about it. We got a lot less money and I was warned, you know, you will never get this financed if you shoot it in black and white. And I always wanted it black and white and um, Miami in color, like Technicolor. Right. Um, and I realized there was a very simple reason for that, one very simple reason, and that was that uh, the, Irving, the, uh, the claw photographs are in black and white. The New York photographs are almost all black and white. And Bunny Yeager's Miami photographs are all in color. Mm -hmm. But it was also to me a great period thing. We also wanted to shoot it on film. That was another big battle because HBO were like, yo, you can make it look just like film. Oh, so you shot 35? We shot, uh, I think 35, I think we shot, shot 16. And then we shot um, reversal. We shot a lot of sort of, we shot kind of 16 reversal and we shot color reversal as well for some of it, for some of the, um, that thing, that uh, little dance she does at the end. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember now whether it was 35 or 16, it's so long ago. Um, but we did a lot of camera tests, and there's, if you shoot black and white film, uh, it looks like the 50s, because black and white film hasn't changed since the 50s. It's the same, same composition, whereas even shooting on color, color films changed enormously. It's automatic period. It's automatic period. It makes it very convincing. But when we were in the middle of shooting it, and we were in our set based on the Claw studio and doing these bondage sequences, um, a cinematographer, Mont Hupful, said to me, you know, if we were shooting this in color, 
it would look more like porn. But because it's black, it's black and white, it gives it a distance that says, no, this is about something else. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly it. That's, that's why I could never see it in color. It needed the distance of black and white. I think the first time in the movie though, that you, you go move away from the black and white is the, is the croquet. Yes. And, and that, now my reading of that is because the film they make eventually is made in, in yeah. color. And so I, 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 I yeah. felt that was a kind of wonderful way to segue into that. And then of course you finally do explode into real color. Um, and every time she goes on holiday, it's in color. So it was like that. And that's like, she saw that as a vacation. They had a lot of fun making that film. And um, it's funny, originally it was a series of scenes and then I thought, oh, this is kind of slowing things up. So we cut it as a montage and it worked great as a montage. But I loved, um, uh, and that was Super 8 or Super, maybe it was Color Reversal. Sorry, I should. Uh, it, was, it, was some, it was not just regular color film, whereas the, the scenes in Miami are shot on, in, on color film, but they're lit in such a way, I just said, you know, can you make it look like Technicolor? Mm. And, and they did. We had a lot of lights, like we had huge lights on the beach and everything for all that stuff to, to make it look like 50s movie. Hmm. Much as you know, you say black and white is automatic period, um, I've always found Super 8 as automatic memory. I completely agree, yes. You're, you're right away Super going, this is background, this is in someone's head, this is in the past. So I, I've always used it for some form of flashback. Yes, I love it. I, I completely agree. I love it. I, I used it in my very first film for the bit of Valerie Solana's childhood and I shot Andy Warhol and it's like, yes, it's memory. That was Super 8. So yeah, I've, I've always just loved Super 8. I used to use it when I was doing documentary and mm. stuff. So yeah. I'm a big, one thing I learned from starting a documentary was, and, and doing, use, working with a lot of archive film, um, was that it, it works really great uh, having a lot of different kinds of footage. If it, if it makes sense for the scene, for the story you're telling, it has to have a, have a logic to it. But I love mixing footage. Yeah. What's with the whole black and white being anathema to financiers, producers? I mean, I, kn I know that 40 years ago it was because you couldn't sell it to color TV. That's, those days are so long gone. Uh, what could possibly be the, the problem with it? It's beautiful. I, people are always struck by it, I think. And you're not making a film anymore for people who are saying, well, I don't want to watch that because it's in black and white. It, it's, the problem to me doesn't exist, but yet it still, it still hangs over the, the whole thing for some reason. Well, that's what they, they said to me was that it was a TV problem. Is that when it goes on TV and you switch onto black and white, people will think it's an old movie and switch over. Um, but I think, I think now where this was 15 years ago, I think we've, I th hopefully, I think we've moved beyond that. But, but it was like, really? It's black and white's beautiful. Why wouldn't someone, if, if, if it's an interesting image, why wouldn't somebody like check it out? Well, yeah, and I've, you're right, it is 15 years ago. Now I don't think people switch around anymore. You know, you're going you're gonna to ping, yeah, I want to watch this movie. I want to see yeah. Notorious Betty Page. Mm -hmm. uh, that was shot for HBO, which I think is probably the first, well, no, I'm sorry, American Psycho was probably the first time you worked for a larger uh, studio. Yeah. If you don't want to talk about it, we don't have to, and I'll no, cut no, this no, out. No, how, no, how was no, it? My no, question is, oh, how no, was it fine. to work with HBO? Um, yeah, no, it was fine. Um, HBO were great. Um, we had a little disagree. They, 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 HBO were great, um, and I had a very good working relationship with them. They were suspicious of me casting Gretchen Maul. That was a battle to cast her, and then... Afterwards, they said you were right, and she's fantastic in the role. Did you have to show them a footage of her? Or? 
Yes, we did. I think we did a couple tests with her. Um, one of her dressed up as Betty. Because, I mean, I have to say, Gretchen doesn't look at all like Betty Page. She's a, a slender, blonde, kind of Scandinavian-looking gal. But uh, as soon as she... That was, a, that was another case. You know, I'd had hundreds of people coming in dressed up as Betty Page in sort of bondage outfits and black wigs. And Gretchen just came in that completely natural, you know, blonde and not dressed all sexy and just came in and was so Betty. She was so perfect. For, she, she had this kind of innocence and ladylike quality and the sort of sexuality. It was like, well, there's nothing better than this, you know. Mm. And someone said to me in the casting office, you know, for everyone else, it's like swimming upstream doing this character. And for her, it seems as natural as breathing. Interesting. Yeah. And then did you also have her come back with all the bondage uh, yeah, gear? Yeah, and then we said, okay, well, we're to show HBO, you know, just going to prove it. To, you know, she can look totally Betty. And yeah. we patted her because she's quite slender. But uh, people always say, oh, she looks just like Betty. And it's like, actually, I don't think she really does, but she, she is Betty. You know, the inner person's what, what matters. And then you can do the externals with wigs and makeup. Going back to the black and white, the opening credits are, I, th I think... Well, I know largely stock, and yet are they re-photographed? Because I've never seen stock feel so um, vibrant and so... Uh, it feels like the opening footage of uh, Sweet Smell of Success, which was shot then, so that's why it looks like Times Square in 1957. Uh, what did you do to the, to the stock that was used? Um, we, you know, it's, it was um, definitely treated... I was thinking about Sweet Smell of Success a lot, mm -hmm. Um, for this film, because that's the great, that's the gorgeous, most gorgeous film about 1950s New York and Times Square and all that. And obviously, you know, there's no Times Square of, uh, left that's anything like that. So I had once, years ago, I had done, I directed a documentary about the last days of Times Square when the development was about to happen. That was for the BBC. And so I had looked at a lot of Times Square archive and you know, all these great neon signs and everything. So um, I was like, I know this stuff is out there. Um, and then um, our researcher at the time, who's a famous documentary ma maker named Sam Green. Uh, Sam Green was the person who originally gave me the idea for Betty Page. And, and he, uh, before he went on to be an Oscar nominee and all the other things he's done, he, um, uh, he was doing research for us on Betty. And he went to Washington and looked through archive and found a lot of stuff. And then we found, but the only problem about the stuff that we found for a lot of the Times Square stuff was that a lot of archive now is only available in digital form. I was hoping to get it directly off the um, negatives, but a lot of stuff is just available in a less great resolution. But somehow we we managed to boost it, and some was some was off negative, some was off digital. It feels to me also so now that now that we've we've brought Sweet Smell of Success, you know, uh, uh, out of the closet. Um, it feels to me like what you were doing pacing-wise is you were making a film about the 50s that might have been, it might have been made that way in the 50s. It almost has the feeling of a period film about a subject that could never have been made in the 1950s. Am I, am I sort of close? Because it feels to me like you have a very conscious sense of this feels like a noir, this feels paced in a certain way that I don't necessarily feel like your other films are paced as. No, no, it's definitely, it's definitely different. I don't quite know why. Um, it's also kind of uh, certainly more comic than something like Charlie Says. 
it's, it, there's a, quite a lot of comedy in it. Um, I'm a big uh, Sam Fuller fan. And when I was thinking about Betty, I was thinking about Sam Fuller. Uh, films like, even though there's nothing thematically in common, things like Pick Up on South Street. So they're kind of like the gritty, like he's an artist of B-movies. And when I started talking about the film with, with Mon Hockful, the, the DP, he said, I feel like these are all the art B, and he, he independently felt that. And he said, and there's also like the B-movies that Orson Welles did. So I looked at, um, um, oh, what's the great one in Mexico? Jeez. Touch of Evil. Yeah, I looked at Touch of Evil. I looked at the one he did about the Nazi in the small town. The Stranger. The Stranger, yeah. which is a fantastic looking film. Yeah. Um, he he kind of poo-pooed it, but I've always thought it's one of his, you know, because it's a very, uh, yeah, it's very evocative. It's a tight script. Yeah. It may not be as unusual as a lot of his work often is, but it's a it's a very good film, The Stranger. Yeah, it's terrific, and it's incredible looking. Mm -hmm. um, and I loved, in a way, also, I was thinking, well, we have not very much money to shoot this film. So B-movies are kind of a model for me. And there's this wonderful thing that Sam Fuller does where he would do these things and, you know, I had to do a scene in one take. So this thing, he would block it, and Orson Welles did a very elaborate version, even more elaborate version of this, where, where people would end up facing the camera to deliver their lines. <laughs> they'd mm. come up behind somebody and face the camera, and then they'd leave. And it's so like, you don't okay. have to cover it. You don't have to yeah, turn around. You don't have to cover it. Hose so, it down with the usual over, over shoulders. and yeah. So I would say to him, okay, well, we'll Sam Fuller this. You know, this scene, we have, like, you know, 20 minutes to shoot. So I thought I will just, because... This is about the underside. It's not about high gloss people. It's 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 about kind of scrappiness, and I'll embrace the whole B movie aesthetic. And it was really because I love those movies and I love a lot of genre stuff. So that that was that was me having fun with that. So when you're working with HBO, do you explain that or do you kind of just slide <laughs> into it and <laughs> and hope they're fine with it? I mean, I was lucky. This was this was their their short-lived film division, and I had a Colin Callender who was running. I had really great, good rapport with him, and he gave great notes. And no, they really, they really, they really uh, endorsed it. Actually, because I don't know another HBO film anything like Notorious Betty Page. No, I think I was very lucky. I honestly feel with all my films that it was just like a miracle that any of them got made. And, and same, I mean, same thing with American Psycho at the beginning. Um, because Lionsgate had never made, they hadn't. They were really straight to video company. They hadn't really made movies, so there was very little. They or were, they bought, yeah, and, and yeah. yeah, and they were really distribution, and so they really uh, were hands off uh, uh, on on set. There, there was there's usually some kind of argument about casting. I've no, I don't think I've ever done a film where there wasn't a big argument about casting, but. Uh, but but in terms of the the style and everything, they were very supportive. Mm. Uh, but, but but you know you you earn your freedom by having a pretty low budget. I mean, the American Psycho budget was six million. It ended up going up to eight million because of the music rights. There's like two million for the music. Well, you know, but I was going to say Betty Page has this incredible soundtrack. Well, I mean, the licensing of that must have been a fortune, and yet you're also saying it's a low budget movie. Well, it was. I mean, the budget was six million. Um, and I think it came in, and maybe there was some, you know, I think what happens often, and somebody had told me this about HBO, is that they're very tight with you while you're shooting, but in post, if they like it, they'll pour some money in. Right. So they poured some money in in, in, uh, in post. But I don't know what the final budget was, but it wasn't that high, because the, the shooting budget was pretty tight. And it was your project that you brought them, right? They, they didn't originate it. No. 
it, and it was Killer Films who'd done I Shot Andy Warhol. So we, we, we had a good thing going there that we were used to filming on pretty tight schedules and, mm -hmm. and all that. Yeah. What was your final feelings about Irving and Paula Claw? Who, who were they to you and, and, what, and what did you think of them? I, I feel like, um, it's funny, um, they were just struggling to make a buck. I think that they were they were immigrant they were they were from immigrant families maybe first generation they'd grown up pretty poor in Brooklyn and I think that they were rebellious in some ways that they felt like they were scamming the system a bit by by doing this slightly irregular built business under the table payments something a little bit illegal but it honestly could have been numbers running mm -hmm. you know they could have been selling things off the back of a truck I think that they were they were almost and they liked earning the money and having a little bit of high life and going out to nightclubs and stuff but I think that really they the sex industry wasn't something that particularly interested in them I think that they just wanted to make some money and they were people who came up from nothing and like a lot of people that way it's like well the system is not going to give us a break so we're going to skirt the law and and yet once they have to get rid of all the films and, and burn everything, there's that great moment where she looks at one and has to save one because she ultimately feels like this is this was my art. This is yeah. what I did. I mean, Paula, Paula, I think, took pride in her photography. Mm -hmm. She was, in, there she is, she's an independent, she's a businesswoman and, and, a, and a photographer. She was proud of, she definitely would tell, because I met Paula a few times, you know, before she died, and she was very proud that she'd done all these photographs, that it was her who did the photographs. So she had, she was like a craftsperson who was proud of what they did, you know, proud of, of, of what she'd managed to achieve. So for her, it was kind of heartbreaking. That's interesting that you met her. You sought her out when you were going to make the film, and movie how did star, you find her? She, she was running Movie Star News hmm. in, the, in the 90s, in the early 90s. She was sick already. She didn't look well, but she was still running Movie Star News, and so they were selling their photographs, and... You know, they'd been through their bad times with the with the Senate hearings and all that, and the censorship, and of course that was all long gone of the past. Yeah, and they had this archive of photos, and hmm. they were selling them. Betty died in two thousand eight. Did she? Did you meet her, or did she see the film, or did you have any contact with her? I had no contact with her. We tried, and I met her brother, and I met her ex-husband. Um, when we had started doing research and we were about to meet her and then uh, she actually signed her life rights away to Scorsese and two producers who, who had attached Scorsese. So that was a big blow because we were pretty far along. But uh, it was sad to me that both that, we could, that then we couldn't pay her. I would have liked to, to have had that relationship. But in the end, after we made, uh, we did get our film made and the other project kind of went away. Um, we arranged for her to see the, the film at the Playboy Mansion because Hugh Hefner had been actually very good to Betty and he had helped her financially and he tried to, he got her lawyers and tried to make sure that she got money out of uh, her photographs, her signed photographs. So I felt like this was a place she was comfortable with so I, I think it was me who suggested, well what about showing it to her at the Playboy Mansion? So they did, I, I didn't go, the producers went. Um, and I think she really, apparently she really enjoyed the first part and then she got very, and then she would say things like, I wasn't wearing a purple dress and stuff. <laughs> um, it wasn't like that. But then she, but she was really enjoying it and she thought that Gretchen was great and, and she's prettier, she's prettier than I was. 
uh, and she was really having a good time with it. And then it, when it got to the Senate hearings and the charges for pornography, she was very, very upset. Almost like it was reliving or making her, her, her suffer again what she'd gone through. Because she was very elderly. She was in her 80s. And I think, I think that's that point she got very ups, upset and disturbed by it. So I felt bad. And I think she was upset that we'd shown this. But you really can't do the story without doing that. And yet what she does, in, as a result of the Senate hearing and, and as a result of the, of the boy who died because of the bondage accident, mm -hmm. um, is that she, she quote-unquote reforms and she disappears from that world and she begins the next part of her life uh, as a born-again. So I would almost expect that she would feel good about that catharsis and yet you're saying that for some reason that that late in life she feels worse about that somehow than everything else that came before it. I find that curious. Yes, I, I mean, I, maybe, maybe, it, maybe it was triggering something, this condemnation she felt. I mean, I think probably of, of the, the most traumatic things in her life were her father's abuse, the rape, and then the Senate hearings, probably. Mm. Um, because this public exposure and pu public condemnation is an extremely painful and upsetting thing, traumatizing thing. I think, and she felt like she was being blamed for all this stuff, and it was it was ex deeply disturbing. And that interesting, yeah. I, uh, now there's that whole uh, kind of Twitter shaming uh, uh, syndrome, which people who have been on the opposite end say you can't leave your house. You feel like everyone's staring at you. You feel like your your life has been, and oftentimes it, people's lives are altered. They can't go to work anymore. They can't. Yeah. If, so if you think about that, sure, she was she was publicly shamed as a result of doing something that she felt was harmless and was a way to earn some money and she didn't particularly see as explicit or pornographic. Yes, and if you think of that trauma as, as someone who was doing something that you know, they, they knew was secret, it was kind of behind closed doors, but nobody seemed to think it was bad and everyone's enjoying themselves and getting paid and it, it seems to be doing good for the people who like the photographs, and then all of a sudden you're told that you are the most sinful and corrupting person, it's, it's really... Mm -hmm. And, and, and again, it's that public exposure, it's public humiliation in, in, with the power of the Senate, so you can imagine. And nobody really cares. She never was, she never did testify in front of the, she was called, but they never, she was called to wait. You know, the film has her waiting to testify throughout the film, and then at the end she's, they told her, tell her, we don't need your testimony. It's funny, because I think the Hollywood version would have had her testify. And she would have given a rousing defense of sexuality and, and, and you know, healthy, healthy, you know, body images and all that. And no, they, nobody wanted to hear her. That's the whole point of the story. She's a woman of the 50s. Nobody cared what she thought. Right. They yeah. wanted expert testimony. If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. You can access these conversations at iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, as well as our website, MoviesTillDawnPodcast.com. If you'd like to see some videos pertaining to the guests of each episode, please visit my blog at MoviesTillDawn.blogspot.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. All interview material and audio clips are covered by the Fair Use Copyright Act of 1976, in which allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research.